Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of MindShift Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Clint Hancock. We are now finishing our third and final look at the Jerry Falwell Sr. and now Junior Legacy. We're talking today with Callum Best of the organization Save 71. And I wanted to do this introduction because since Callum and I talked, which was a little while ago when we actually did this recording, there's been a few changes He and his fellow alumni of Liberty University, which was founded by Jerry Falwell Sr. decades ago, he and I are going to get into this issue of Charlie Kirk and the Falkirk Center, which until just recently was actually headquartered at Liberty University. And it's one of the issues that the Save 71 organization was dead set against, in addition to having Jerry Falwell Jr. as the head of Liberty University. And of course, we talk about why and how Jerry Jr. got the boot last year. But this is interesting. I'm doing this recording on the 18th of March, and just a few days ago on the 16th of March, news stories came out. I saw it in the Washington Post as well as some other outlets that Liberty University has not renewed its contract with the Falkirk Center. Reading now from the Roy's report, I'm looking at this article now by Julie Roy's on the 16th of March, 2021. She says, the headline of it says, Charlie Kirk out at Liberty University's Falkirk Center, think tank renamed. The article states, quote, Conservative firebrand Charlie Kirk is out as the head of Liberty University's Falkirk Center, and Liberty is renaming the think tank the Standing for Freedom Center. Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA, started the Falkirk Center three years ago with now-disgraced former Liberty University president Jerry Falwell Jr. She goes on, The think tank was a powerhouse for the pro-Trump evangelical movement and drew numerous high-profile conservative leaders to liberty, including Trump aide Sebastian Gorka, Christian radio host Eric Metaxas, and former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis. Kirk had the fire. Falwell had the institutional force. The article goes on. She says, But the center's reputation cratered with Falwell's, and after Falwell resigned amid sexual and financial scandal... Some critics saw the Falkirk Center as a remnant of Falwell's highly politicized and worldly leadership. Save 71, a group of Liberty alumni advocating for reform, publicly called for the center to close. And of course, this is what Callum and I are going to be talking about. And the article finishes, it says, Though the decision is only now coming to light, Liberty decided last fall not to renew Kirk's contract, according to Scott Lamb, Liberty's senior vice president for university communications who spoke with the New York Times. Lamb told the Times he personally made the decision regarding Kirk's contract. Now, Lamb speaking, we gave it a lot of thought and we decided to allocate our resources in different ways than that partnership with Charlie. And this is interesting. She concludes this section. She says, that announcement and name change has not appeased Save 71. The group tonight tweeted the news and said, whatever it's called, it's an embarrassment to Liberty students, professors, and alumni. And then the Save 71 tweet, which was dated the 
17th of March, 2021, their tweet said, quote, It's official. The Falkirk Center is changing its name to the Standing for Freedom Center, and Charlie Kirk is no longer involved. But whatever it's called, it's an embarrassment to at liberty you, students, professors, and alumni, end quote. So I thought that was really interesting. Here's a change just in the time that Callum and I talked about why save 71. So let's go on into the interview. I'm going to bring you this last sort of look at the Falwell legacy as it's ended in disgrace for Jerry Falwell Jr. And then left them with the Falkirk Center, which, of course, as we now know, is going to, well, it's not going to go away. Turning Point USA isn't going to go away. Charlie Kirk's not going away, even though they've renamed this to something else. It's still a, a bit of a punt, isn't it? So let's hear what Callum and I have to talk about. I think you'll find this interview interesting. Even though he's coming from still an evangelical sort of perspective, he has deconstructed quite a bit. And so he's on an interesting journey, too. So let's look at this issue of Why Save 71? The fight to save Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. I'm speaking today with Callum Best, who is a Liberty University graduate, and more crucially for our purposes, one of the co-founders of the Save 71 organization. So welcome, Callum, to MindShift Podcast. Hey, Clint. Good to be here with you. Yeah, so we were chatting a little bit about what we want to talk about. I'm really interested in why you guys started to Save 71, because I was obviously following the story, as probably everybody else was, back around, when was it, July or August of 2020? You founded the organization, I think it was in August, wasn't it, of 2020, when the scandal erupted about the pictures on Instagram, Jerry Falwell on the yacht, the pants unzipped, and all the rest of it. Was that what led you to start that in the first place? So actually, no. We, uh, we incorporated back in June as mm-hmm. a nonprofit, and it, it actually surprises people to hear that. We started as an organization because of concerns that long predated those scandals. We initially incorporated after the, you know, the, the, the earlier scandal with the blackface mask um, that, mm-hmm. he, that he posted. But even that was just kind of the, the tipping point of, of years of concerns about what had been going on in the university. I, I think there's, there's two kind of families of concerns that we had. One of them was just the terrible job that Falwell had done as an organizational leader through things like you know, denying tenure to faculty members, cutting programs of the university that were very important for education and learning. Um, But then there was the other side of our concerns, which are the more spiritual faith-based concerns, where we saw the kind of perversions of faith that were used to justify the authority structures that existed at school, the kinds of political activities that the school was gleefully engaging in, the way that they were teaching young people to engage in society and the world. And we could see all that as a direct influence of what Falwell was doing at the school. And so all these, you know, interests kind of converged together into a big melting pot of, of issues and feelings. And, and that's the you know, space we stepped into. Yeah. So how much was your involvement? How much would that have influenced the board's decision ultimately to let Falwell go? Do you think it did play a significant factor? Because I mean, I was reading all the posts on Twitter around, well, I guess it was August Whenever it was, he ended up finally getting quote unquote fired, I guess, let go with a $10 million severance package or whatever it was. Did your uh, involvement play a, a role in that, do you think? You know, it's really hard to know. Um, I, I think in our, in my more doubtful moments, I, I think that the board eventually removed Falwell because they were embarrassed, not because they believe that they are culpable of any wrongdoing. 
Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, these are, you know, conservative Southern Baptist kind of sexual Puritan type leaders. And the Falwell scandal was embarrassing to them. Letting him go happened very quickly um, after that. But it's worth pointing out that the board has still not said that Falwell did anything wrong. And actually, mm. Falwell brought a lawsuit against the board alleging that it was a wrong, you know, wrongful termination because they did not do an investigation. And it's kind of a funny uh, right. lawsuit, right? Because they should have done an investigation. They, mm-hmm. they should have done the due diligence to realize, hey, this guy's been rotten for years and, and so have we, but they mm-hmm. did it. They just pulled the trigger because they were embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's hard to know, you know how much influence we will have, but I think we are saying the right things. I think we're saying necessary things and, and we'll keep on saying them mm-hmm. um, until we get the change that we need to have. Well, and I think the hypocrisy was pointed out so clearly. I can't remember who it was, but there was a a Twitter thread around about that same time where one of the Liberty University students went through and cataloged all of the various fines that Jerry Falwell, had he been a student (laughs) at Liberty at the time, with all the infractions just from that one Instagram post, the infamous yacht party, the trailer park right. boys thing. Right. I mean, and, and, what about and, and, that? And he'll point out, I mean, as, as usual that, you know, leaders make rules because they know what's better for the members mm-hmm. of a community than the members do themselves. And, okay. and therefore, because they are kind of transcendent over the rules, the rules needn't apply to them in the same way. Right. Um, they are, but cultural expectations, not, not moralistic <laughs> commands. Right. Okay. Um, and that's what they'll, that's what they'll point out. I'm sure. Yeah, but the thing is, the culture, I mean, I went to a very conservative Bible college as well, maybe not as conservative as Liberty. We didn't have guns on campus, for one thing, on a shooting range or whatever, but we had very, very strict rules, same kind of rules about alcohol and, you know, dress. We had a dress code and all the rest of it, but that's that was all part of the Christian culture. So why does that argument work for the, it should work for the leaders as well. Isn't this something oh, yeah. God, God I, wants, you know, for his followers to follow? Yeah, I, I agree, and I think I think part of the reason why this example sparked this case sparked such outrage within the Liberty community was because you know, p- members of the Liberty community don't really see Liberty's honor code as that restrictive of activities that they would be doing anyway, mm. right? They they come from cultural conservative backgrounds, which already kind of codify the things that are in Liberty's code of conduct and in, in softer ways. They've, they've grown up thinking that drinking was a sin. They've grown up thinking that mm-hmm. sex before marriage was a sin. So when they get to liberty and those things are part of the rules, that's not, that's not a huge deal. Like nobody's, nobody's out here wanting to have drunken parties on campus and, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So there's very much, it's people do not necessarily view what they call the liberty way as imposing so many additional rules on themselves aside from what they would already do. The most mm-hmm. troublesome thing in the Liberty way for most students is the curfew. Right. <laughs> That's it. Everything else doesn't feel too, too, uh, too complicated. Right. right. It's just how everybody acts. So when somebody, when somebody steps out of line with that, it, it causes problems. But you also had a long-standing history. Okay. Maybe they weren't scandals per se, mm-hmm. but Jerry Falwell Jr. I mean, he seemed like he was in it for the money. He did seem like he turned the university around. It was in terrible shape, as I understand it, when his father handed it over or when Jerry Falwell Sr. passed away. 
and he was able to bring in huge numbers, specifically like online students. I mean, there's a huge enrollment of distance learning students, isn't it, that pays a huge amount of bills for Liberty. But he's been involved in real estate all over the city of yeah. Lynchburg. He's got saw all this cronyism and patronage with campus projects and everything else. So that's been a long-standing thing, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, he, I, he's a UVA-trained lawyer. Um, he went to right. one of the top law schools in the country, and he'll tell you his focus was never on pastoring on spiritual development. He's he's explicitly denied that part of his his role. He said, you know, I'm a business guy. I'm a trained lawyer. My job is to improve the finances of the school, and the spiritual stuff is for everybody else. Of course, he doesn't shy away from using God's name to endorse his positions whenever it's convenient, but. Uh, when it is not convenient, he'll just deny that he has any spiritual role whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you pointed out the online school. That's where most of Liberty's money comes from, along with just government funding for students' loans and such. Um, but yeah, the, the online school funds a lot of the residential school's growth. And yeah, he's he has really turned around the school from the position it was in. I, th- I think most of the initial turnaround came from a really great life insurance policy that mm. Jerry Falwell Jr. managed to negotiate for Falwell Sr. shortly before his very unexpected death. Um, and so that cash infusion really helped the university. So a lot of the old guard at the university, the, the you know older administration people, older board officials, they were with the university when it was in the, just the financial pit. And so they are profoundly grateful to Falwell Jr. for turning Mm -hmm. around the school. And they see him as a sort of savior of the school precisely because he was able to make that business turn around. I guess now his his memory's kind of tarred in their minds. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you know, that was a big selling point for Falwell among the Mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, he did turn the place around financially. It sounded like, as we say, it was in terrible shape. But one of the things that I came across in reading about Jerry Falwell Jr., was that he seemed like he ran the place with an iron fist, like the board members were just afraid of him, you know, like a dictatorial type of scenario. Is that the picture that seems consistent with how you've understood his role there? I'd say that's, um, that may be the perspective of some faculty members and administrators that, that experience the negative effects of his leadership more often. I'd say for the board members, that's that's not the case. I, I'd say his, his power is exercised in more soft ways there. Uh, many of the board members love him, and they love him because they loved his father. For example, the pastor of my hometown church where I grew up is on the executive board of you know, Liberty's Board of Trustees. And I remember at one point talking to him about my concerns with Falwell Jr. And he told me, you know, I held Jerry Falwell Jr. when he was a baby. And I know his daddy and Mm -hmm. the best education I ever got was at the feet of Falwell senior. And they, they kind of view junior as the second coming of, of senior, right? He's the guy that'll carry out seniors incredible vision for the place. And it's also important to realize that the board members don't really do anything. I mean, they come in a couple hours every year, um, visit the convocation, which is sort of the campus chapel service, have a meeting in which they're managed very heavily by Jerry Falwell and Trey Falwell, the chief legal counsel and whoever the head of construction is. It's not like the board members are coming into contact with these serious problems at the university mm-hmm. and then Falwell is bullying them into submission. Like they, they just kind of grant him carte blanche, right, to do whatever he wants. Mm. And then he tells them that 
sure enough, that was a good idea. You giving me that authority and look, everything's going great. Y'all are awesome. So well. <laughs> right, exactly. And so it's a very, you know, self-reinforcing culture of mm. we're right, you're right, we're right, you know. So yeah, I, I think they're, they're in his pocket, sure, but it's a different kind of being in his pocket. But then, of course, you had the pool boy scandal. I mean, that was all part and parcel of the whole thing. I mean, that's a whole nother deal, you know, whether he's posing for a picture on Instagram on a yacht. But then you've got this, all this other stuff and then the allegations that Becky Falwell basically like yeah. groomed and sexually assaulted a student. I've never heard of anything that's come out of that. There's been no investigation launched as far as I can tell. Where's that at? What's that all about? It's horrifying, um, particularly the example of, you know, of like you said, of Becky grooming and, and assaulting a student. That was particularly just chilling to, mm-hmm. to hear about. But I, I, I really think there's no investigation because uh, they're just embarrassed. I mean, they want it to go away. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the kind of thing that good Christians talk about. It's not the kind of thing that good Christians have happen in their communities. And they're ready for it to go away. And they did what they had to do to make it go away to the tune of, you know, 10 million bucks. Wow. 30 pieces of silver, man. That's just how it is. <laughs> but you know, it struck me too. I was reading an article. I think we, we were mentioning it in our emails back and forth. The article by a, a Francis Fitzgerald that came out in the New Yorker back in 1981. And this is a fast, it's a huge article. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a book almost. Right. This, yeah. uh, this, uh, this author talks about going to Lynchburg and it, you know, kind of embedding in the community when it was just after the founding of the moral majority and everything. One of the things that struck me was that Fitzgerald talks about um, how Falwell senior ran the place very similarly to the way his son later did, you know, that kind of this dictatorial sort of like had a million ideas, but in that case he ran it into the ground, you know? So I thought he kind of set the stage for how the son would later run the place. Yeah he had access to the vision mm-hmm. and everybody else did not. And right. I mean, the same thing with, with the son, he had access to his father's vision. He was, he was the one that his father said had access to the vision. You know, he, mm-hmm. he took on the mantle and, and certainly in, you know, conservative evangelical cultures like that one, people just accept that, that the leader has the vision and what is ought to be. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it works in those cultures. <laughs> that's how it works. Well, and then, of course, the other thing is the political involvement. The thing I've been researching is kind of this transitional period where Falwell was kind of on the vanguard, Falwell Sr., of transitioning sort of out of the classic fundamentalist movement and into the evangelical involvement with the Christian right and the moral majority in in the 70s. And then, to me, there seemed like there's a through line between what Falwell Sr. was doing and Falwell Jr. was doing with his endorsement of Trump and everything. What what was your take on the the whole Trump endorsement by Falwell Jr.? Well, back then I was very young, and I wasn't very engaged in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you I, say I back actually, then, how, it's in nineteen seventy nine, how young? Oh, I thought how, you meant the, the, I thought you meant the, the the Trump endorsement. I, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So seventy nine is is too far back then. <laughs> right. Right. Well, at the um, my understanding is that the the political involvement really happened at a time when Falwell Senior was very frustrated that it felt like the government was coming at Christian organizations for racial segregation policies at their private schools, right? Mm-hmm. The, they were revoking tax exemption for 
schools that didn't adhere to modern understandings of the Civil Rights Act. And at that time, when those frustrations were really high, GOP activists basically came to Falwell and said, hey, we could do this thing together where we get Mm -hmm. all the Christian conservatives to get up in arms about abortion as an issue. And from my understanding, at that time in the evangelical church, abortion was not really a huge deal. The, The Southern Baptists themselves put out a statement basically saying therapeutic abortion is okay in certain cases and we're not displeased with Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's worth pointing out that this was before like the ultra fundamentalist takeover of the SBC. Um, so this was different leadership than what we have today. But at the time, it, it wasn't really a big issue. It was years yeah. later that, you know, this kind of conservative movement coalesced around abortion. And it wasn't really about abortion in that sense. It was about creating a bigger movement of conservatives that could be tied to Republicanism and to the GOP forever through moralizing on issues like that. Mm-hmm. You know, the merits of the issue of abortion aside, it wasn't about that issue. It was about creating a permanent voting block of people mm-hmm. that would support conservative ideas. Mm-hmm. And Falwell always saw himself as uh, a warrior. <laughs> and so, Culture warrior. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so moving forward to the Trump endorsement, at the time, I, I didn't think much of it because I was from, I, I grew up in a family that's very much still today, like Trump-loving conservatives. I voted for Trump in 2016 because I was, I was not yet broken away from mm-hmm. my, my culture. So I didn't really think anything of it. I do remember other evangelical leaders at the time being surprised because Falwell was, was kind of one of the very early. Yeah. He was an early adopter. Right. Right. He really was. Um, right. Yeah. I, I guess I should use the term evangelical in quotes because he denies it whenever it's <laughs> useful for him. Right. Uh, what but, actually is he? That's the question. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I, I think it's just a, I mean, a continuation of the same sort of pattern of mm-hmm. reactionary politics and desire for, influence and power that we've always seen. Well, it's fascinating to me reading about the history of the moral majority, for example, going back to 78, Mm -hmm. 79, how they were able to work that. Like you said, okay, so you start out with this anger over the segregation academies that were started as a reaction to the Brown versus Board of Education ruling in 54. And Falwell himself, let's not forget, Jerry Falwell Sr. founded the Lynchburg Christian Academy as a segregation academy. So he was one of those segregationists as well. He was in yeah, there with Bob it was, it was It was reported in the papers, at the, the local papers, as yeah. being a school for the white you know, families. White Christian kids, yeah. It was, it was an yeah. extension of of the Thomas Road Baptist Church as well as Liberty and University. And it's and it's still there too. I don't I don't know if is they it? talk about the history of the school in there in, in the school itself, but that that three-story brick building is still connected to the side of uh Thomas Road. I did Road not know that. <laughs> I, you can drive by it every day. Yeah. Wow. So is it still a school? Yeah, Liberty Liberty Christian Academy. Wow. I, I'm sure it must be segregated now though. <laughs> yeah, probably sure probably probably uh probably less segregated than it than it was. Yeah, for sure. But what's fascinating to me is to see how they were able to transform this on a policy level, because the argument was, okay, the government is all about government overreach. They've taken away prayer in public schools. They've taken away Bible study in schools. Now they're telling us they're re- reaching into Christian schools and telling us we have to segregate. And then they, they obviously n- none of those items were going to be motivating that voting block, like you say. And so they were able to say, okay, Actually, abortion is the ultimate government overreach because it's an assault on the family. The family is weakened. That America is weakened. We're going to be weakened in the eyes of the communists, the Russians. You know, so right, it's this right. whole 
Now it's a big deal. Yeah. Well, it's a tech. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, I mean, example of yeah. political organizing technique. I mean, mm-hmm. you get yeah. genius, you really. get literal millions of people to base their entire political identities on what they believe is genocide. Like, yeah, genocide is a pretty powerful, <laughs> motivating tool. Yeah. And so, yeah, it worked really, really well. Far better than things like school prayer and, and other, mm-hmm. you know, other issues like that, did for sure. But if you can cast it as government overreach, that's the difference, isn't it? Saying, look, the Supreme Court is passing all of these laws that are anti-Christian, they're anti-church, mm-hmm. they're anti-God. Yeah. Look what they're doing. Now we've got a bigger, much bigger issue than just, yeah, taking away a, a prayer in a school or whatever yeah. it is. You There's can a big persecution. Package it all together. Yeah. yeah. Huge yeah. persecution complex and in, in all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we come back from the break, we're going to get into this issue of why did Jerry Falwell Jr. endorse Donald Trump so early and what sort of an effect did that have along with the founding of things like the Falkirk Center on the sort of typical Liberty University student at the time. Of course, Callum was a student when all this was going on. He's since graduated, but it's quite interesting that he and his fellow classmates and alumni helped to organize this group, Save 71. And then we're going to get into as I want to really find out why do you want to save this thing. If you listen to the episode that I did on Jerry Falwell Sr. recently, his legacy, we found out that Liberty University was part of this movement of fundamentalist Christians back in the late 60s, early 70s, and it's got some pretty shocking stuff in its own history. So why do we want to save it? So we're going to get into that at the end of the show. I just wanted to give a quick shout out. Thank you to Stacy, who is the latest $10 a month supporter of the show on Patreon. In fact, I just sent Stacy out in California a nice MindShift podcast t-shirt as a thank you. So I appreciate all the support that I get. If you support the show at a $5 a month level, I'll send you something really cool from North Wales. I just sent a bunch of those out about two weeks ago, and they're now starting to arrive. So I've been getting messages from people sending me pictures of the little gift that I sent out as just a little thank you for your support. So if you want to do that, the links to the Patreon page are in the show notes as always. I'll just mention too what's coming up in the next few weeks. Well, we've got a bonus episode with Conway and Siegelman, who of course are the authors of Holy Terror. We had a fantastic conversation just a little while ago about their book, Holy Terror. We actually took a much deeper dive into the origins of the Christian right because of course they were there. They started researching this stuff around about 1980. And of course, the Moral Majority was founded in 1979. So from 1980 to about 81, 82, they were on the ground, literally traveling all over America, researching this movement, the Christian right, talking to people, interviewing people. And that's what Holy Terror is. It's the first journalistic investigation on the ground of the Christian right written at the time. It's an incredibly invaluable resource. It's like a time capsule. It's preserved that bit of history for us in very good detail. So that conversation with Conway and Siegelman is coming up. So look for that as a bonus episode. Then we're going to get through some of the back content. I've had these conversations. They're queued up. 
They're going to be dropped soon. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Terry Daniel, Dr. Death. And so we had a really good conversation about death, dying, religious trauma syndrome. We also got into the issue of mental health and religion. How does religion affect our mental health? And so some really interesting stuff that we talked about. I also talked with Andrew Jasko, who is a therapist who deals, again, with religious trauma syndrome. We had a, a literally a mind-blowing conversation about the use of psychedelics to deal with handling and healing PTSD and religious trauma syndrome. And in fact, speaking of RTS, we've got two absolutely fantastic MindShift Zoom calls booked for the month of March with two people who specialize in RTS, religious trauma syndrome. This weekend, as I'm doing this recording, coming up Sunday the 21st of March, is the first of our calls. We're going to be talking with Thomas Hanna. I had him on a few months ago. He's an ex-pastor who lives in Tampa Bay, Florida, and now he's a therapist who deals exclusively with trauma and religious trauma. And then the week after that, we're going to have Andrew Jasko come in, and I know there's going to be a lot of questions about this issue of healing PTSD and religious trauma syndrome with psychedelics, and he's really becoming an expert on that, and he himself has experimented a lot with it, and so it's it's helped him massively. So really fascinating stuff. How do you get on these calls? Well, again, this is part of the support for this show on Patreon. This is what we do. In addition to those calls, we also do a monthly patrons-only call, which we just had a little bit ago, which was absolutely fantastic. So that is some of the rewards that you get for being a supporter of this show. So you can be a part of those closed calls. You can be a part of our Closed Mindshift Podcast Facebook group where you will have access to those calls as well as being part of a very fantastic, supportive community. A lot of people who come out of religion. So it's really good stuff going on. So anyway, let's get on back and finish up this conversation with Callum Best. We're going to get into Falwell Jr., his legacy, and we'll also talk about what was going on at the Falkirk Center as we continue to explore this question of why save 71. And of course, there's got to be something, though, we have to say, and there's all the speculation, is there, that Falwell Jr.'s endorsement of Trump may have had something to do with the whole pool boy scandal initially, isn't it? Because there's some rumor that Michael Cohen, who was still Trump's fixer, well, we know he, he helped make that story go away, didn't he? There were some racy photos allegedly going around of right. Becky and all the rest of it. So who knows? Did it have something to do with that as well? Yeah, I I think you expressed the the rumor very well. It is still a rumor. Um, so so I guess we will we will always wonder whether whether in the absence of racy photos, whether Falwell the culture warrior would have endorsed Trump. That's or, right. Yeah. Or Cruz, you know. That's um, right. He sure did a, a, an about face on that because he was a Cruz guy, wasn't he, at first? He was, I, I'm pretty confident he was expected to endorse Cruz. I mean, Cruz, mm. Cruz launched his campaign at Liberty. So, right. so I think, yes, that was, that was a bit of a surprise to everybody who was watching. Mm. So it was a bit we, of a surprise that anybody would endorse Trump at that point, right? I mean, he was yeah, just kind of really early, really outsider. Yeah. Yeah. So were you there when Trump, I know you just graduated, didn't you? Not that long ago from Liberty. Were you there when Trump came to speak? As a, I, as a candidate? I was finishing my senior year in high school. Ah, um, you missed so it. I was, I was not in college yet. I think I was watching it, though, because my sister was already at Liberty at that point. And so mm. sometimes my mom would watch the, the convocation events on live stream. And I, I remember being there for at least part of it in my, in my living room at home because I remember hearing Trump say two Corinthians when he, when he said that and just yeah. 
laughing because it was so funny to anybody who had you know yeah. grown up around around the bible yeah he doesn't know but, yeah it's clear that he was he was completely clueless when it came to biblical language theological language he, right. you know he hadn't been he had coached this, enough I yet think he, he had this hilarious follow-up or somebody asked him about that and he said something like yeah whoever my speech guy was wrote wrote it down like that and i just read it like it was on the paper and it was again just a confirmation a you didn't know what you're like okay well, yeah you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Even if you, yeah, if you were a Christian, you knew you wouldn't, you wouldn't pronounce it that way. Cause you know how, yeah, it's just a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah so you got yeah. Trump launch, kind of, he launches his career as well at Liberty. You know, here's Trump, this candidate endorsed early on by Falwell Jr. Uh-huh. What's your take on it all now? Okay. So Falwell's gone. Where's you, where's Liberty at currently? Because I know you're still campaigning with your Save 71 for more yeah. reforms, aren't you? Yeah, well, I think like, as I kind of alluded to in the beginning of this conversation, it is a serious problem that the board has not admitted any wrongdoing or stated mm. any wrongdoing on Falwell's part. It's just indicative of their general unwillingness to take on any serious role of accountability or governance. And that's, that is a real problem. They are intent on pouring money into fake think tanks that encourage Christian nationalism while bashing things that are not really threats to the church at all. They, they do not have, seems, any understanding of, of what the role of, of educators and Christian moral development is. And it's just a very sad thing to exist at Liberty. We're, we're hoping mm-hmm. that their president search committee hopefully a little more careful and hopefully staffed with sensible people Hmm. um, because it would be ideal to get a president who kind of brings a new focus and direction to the university. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where our our advocacy is oriented right now, trying to, trying to influence the presidential search process and keeping pressure on leaders to, again, have still not admitted any culpability despite being there for just combined decades of Mm. blindness to fall well and blindness to any level of responsibility that they could take on. Yeah, you mentioned that. So you've got the Falkirk Center. That is located at Liberty's campus. What about that? We, what can you tell us about the Falkirk Center? Well, there's not much to say about them, except they're kind of like any run-of-the-mill Christian nationalist Facebook meme page you might find. Mm. Um, there is no critical thought. There's no substantive argument of any sort. It's really just an organization that exists to tell Christians that they are persecuted and that they need to take back the culture for Christ. You know, they, they go after all the traditional right-wing boogeymen of the moment. They, they change by the week, but right now it's like critical race theory, cultural Marxism. Still not sure what that is, um, but <laughs> it is bad. a thing that, it is a thing that they complain about. Um, okay. Liberalism, LGBT stuff, transgender, you know, the, the works. Um, Typical thing. Right. Social justice and all mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, we know, obviously, Charlie Kirk was a major Trump guy. He was hosting rallies before COVID lockdowns and maybe even during some of the stuff. He, so he's an unapologetic Trumpist as well. I know I read yeah. an article that you wrote in The Bulwark that's really interesting, talking about the Falkirk Center, and you're mm-hmm. calling for... The, the thing to be dissolved. You say this has no business being on Liberty's campus. What are we doing here? What, yeah, what's yeah. your What's your reasoning for wanting that wanting them to just get rid of it? I mean, it's it's brainless and it's connected to an institution of higher education. Just as a few examples, they have people on that spread lies about 
America's latest election mm-hmm. all the time. You know, the, the traditional rigmarole of fraud and the election was stolen from Donald Trump. They had a really influential pastor come on, John MacArthur, who has a oh, who's yeah. kind of denying COVID restrictions in, uh, in his church. And they had him come on and say that even if he gave COVID to somebody and they died, it wouldn't be his fault because God is sovereign. And they just okay. have people come on and say the most just calloused, morally blind things to support their mission of straight reactionary politics. That all, that's all it is. There, there is no critical thinking at all. Their most academic elements get like 40 views on YouTube. Hmm. And everything else is just them posting graphics on Facebook that have kind of gotcha quotes from mm-hmm. conservative media figures about how the left is taking over your life and you need to stand up and stop them. That's the kind of stuff that they get popularity from because it appeals to just reactionary sentiments among people who have them, mm-hmm. but it has no place in an institution of higher education that claims to be about encouraging critical thinking and encouraging open questioning and, uh, and learning. It's just, it's an embarrassment to the school and that's why it needs to go. But if you think about it, you mentioned the persecution narrative that's mm-hmm. been around, I mean, you go back to the 19th century, the birth of fundamentalism itself. They've always had to have a bogeyman. It was German higher criticism. It was liberal social gospel. And then Jerry Falwell Sr., he railed against pornography. He had a suit against Larry Flint in the 80s, right, yeah. you know, of Hustler magazine. He railed against alcoholism and the encroachment of communism. So they're continuing, though, in that trend, aren't they? There's, there's a boogeyman out there. They've got to find that person or thing that's persecuting them, so they think. So that's part of the fundamentalist tradition. Yes, it, it definitely is. It really comes from, I guess, kind of, one is that they feel like they have a mission to, you know, a mission to take over the culture. That's one element of it. Kind of a dominionist angle? Yeah, yeah. They're kind of interpreting the Great Commission as, you know, we need to save souls. And also by doing that, we'll save the culture. And and there's also another element of entitlement to it. Like they, they feel like the culture was once theirs back when the, the civil religion happened to line up neatly with what Christianity was mm-hmm. teaching. Um, since then, the civil religion has somewhat separated from what Christianity teaches and, and they feel that it has been taken from them. So there's this, I think, confluence of feeling entitled to the culture and also feeling a duty to own the culture. And it just converges into this, overwhelming drive to to see themselves as the the persecuted victims of of the the powerful ruling class right it's it's uh it's it's actually beautifully beautifully marxist the way they view the world and uh in in terms of the the class struggle that they they see themselves in right now but um, they don't seem to realize that if they were philosophically consistent they might actually have some really interesting uh episodes but they are not so they don't but maybe that's the cultural Marxism that you were talking about. <laughs> right. It's that's the postmodern. It it's the postmodernism. It's creeping in. Oh, I know. Um, but yeah, they, they really that. are. It's one of the most hilarious things about it is yeah. listening to people rail against postmodernism while denying like really any sort of objective truth out, outside of what God is telling us through our fallible interpretations of the Bible, railing against people who have a victim mentality when literally their entire shtick is we are victims and we are being oppressed. We need to get power again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's, and that's what I mean by saying brainless. I mean, they are totally unself-aware that this is what they're doing and, and people are just buying it. And again, that's, as you say, that's attached to Liberty University 
I'm, I read your article, as I say, in the bulwark, and you quoted, I think it's the one of the current leaders of the administration of Liberty, and he's defending the Falkirk Center. He's saying, hey, this is fine. We've received hundreds of supportive emails, Callum. What's the oh, problem? Hundreds right. of right. supportive Right, the, the spokesperson, yeah, yeah. He was, he was responding to the, the detractors of the Falkirk Center by saying that they received hundreds of supportive emails, which makes okay. sense given that the director of the Falkirk Center said that their goal was to have massive cultural influence. Um, so if that's what you're going for, then maybe hundreds of emails that's make sense as a, as a metric for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my last question is, I'm, I've, this is my real burning question. Okay. So yeah. I'm not sure where you're coming from in your own faith. You said earlier that you kind of deconstructed a little bit. Obviously, you're questioning things. Um, yeah. But why save liberty? That's my question. Okay, so you've got a school that we've talked about, a university that's got deep roots into fundamentalism. It's got deep roots into the evangelical and fundamentalist involvement in politics, the Christian right, the dominionist angle. Culturally, it's got huge problems. Why bother to save it? That's my question. What's worth saving about it? Well, um, my deconstruction, if you will, happened there, and I don't think that it necessarily would have happened elsewhere. It was a supportive environment for faith, mm. and I, I genuinely did experience love and caring and acceptance at Liberty in a, in a way that I have not elsewhere, and I will always remember that, and I'll always miss that. Mm-hmm. And so... On the ground, the students and the the staff and the administration and the faculty of Liberty University are very pleasant. And there are people who care very much about the school. And honestly, if you get them in, in private, they're pretty burdened by the same concerns that, that we've expressed about mm-hmm. Liberty. They just are not in a position where they can speak out about it. And so I just, I, I think you see a, a tyranny of of one or two influential people at Liberty University who spread views that, that are not representative of what the school is actually like, the, the care and charity that exists at the school. And I know enough of that, what I see as kind of the true genuine Liberty, that I want more people to see it. I want more people to see that. And I also want those influential people who are spreading bad religion and bad faith to stop poisoning mm-hmm. the school with the stuff that they poison it with. Yeah, that's a really it's a really complicated um, question to answer. I, I guess I guess at the end of the day, it can come back also to to just the natural human urge to improve one's communities when you when you care about them deeply. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I could not care about improving liberty. I don't I don't know that I could just let it go. I love it, and so I I, I feel compelled to try to improve it. Mm-hmm. You want to keep um, fighting for it. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I can resonate a little bit. I mean, like I said, my Bible college experience was a very fundamentalist Bible college, but you almost had two kind of streams there. You had the administrative side of the college, and then you had the faculty, which I yeah. thought were wonderful. I loved the professors, the teachers I had for the most part, and I still have a, a tremendous amount, like you say, of respect and love for those people. They invested in me personally when they went mm-hmm. way far and above what they were required to do just in a classroom setting. But then you had the administrative side, which made some horrific business decisions that impacted us badly as students, really, really badly. For example, they tried to sell our student house out from underneath us right in the middle of a term with my daughter in the hospital. You know, I mean, shocking type stuff that seemed really callous. And that had nothing to do, I felt like, with the faculty. 
which was a different story, you know? So I had to separate those out in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's also, I mean, maybe perhaps it's just a, you know, a, a motif of the, the Christian faith in general, but I mean, redemption is an idea that, that resonates strongly with me and I'm sure with many others too. And it, it, it pains me that, that when people see my undergraduate school, my faith, my whatever, they think about Liberty and I, and maybe it's romantic, but I think it can be, I think that can be changed. I've had more than a few encounters with individuals who said, who have said things like, you know, I, I thought that you were going to be a total homophobe and bigot. Right. Typical uh, fundamentalist. Once I, once I found that you came from Liberty, right. And you aren't like that at yeah. all. And, and honestly, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and so I have to recognize that if I did not engage in the kind of activism that I'm trying to engage in right now, I, I would not be the person that people said that about, mm. right? I, I would be, I would be the person who, who politely disagreed, but didn't say it. And so I, I do not think that there's any way to separate disagreement from action if you actually want your disagreement to have any sort of meaning or substance mm. to it at all. And, and again, that may be just the activist in me speaking, um, but I, but I believe that I don't think there's any point to disagreeing about something that impacts a huge amount of people sure. if you don't actually try to impact people with it. And so, yeah, I mean, that may be just a purely pragmatic reason why I'm, why I'm doing something, but I, I see the change that, that my advocacy has, has wrought in my life and the way that I view the world and the ways that I, that I see people and also in the ways that people see me. And I want that development and that change for the community as a whole. And I will do my part to make that happen. I can definitely hear the passion in your voice. You know, that definitely comes across. So I'm thinking in terms of resources too, if someone's like a, let's say a Liberty alumni, in fact, a good friend of mine, my friend's spouse, she mailed her diploma back to Liberty, right. which a lot of people did, didn't they? when all that was going on with Trump and Falwell, you know, and the scandals, but yeah. where can people find resources? You've got a couple articles on the bulwark sure, as well, sure. but where can people find other resources about Save 71? Yeah. I, I want to actually spend a little time on this just in case anybody's listening from Liberty or, or any other fundamentalist organization that you're concerned <laughs> with. So specifically for Save 71, we have a website, save71.org. Mm -hmm. And something we've done on that website is we've put this huge timeline together of our years of concerns with Falwell. And the reason why we did that is to solve a problem that is common in a lot of schools and specifically Christian schools, which is that because the the student population turns over every four years, you can get through your entire four years at a school without ever really learning about the the deep history mm -hmm. of of the school right there's there's not a a sort of oral storytelling or transfer of history that can take place in the same way that it can in more long standing communities and so one of the big problems that you you face in in colleges especially is that nobody knows what has happened. Nobody knows mm. the history. I certainly didn't until I ran into people who happened to know and they shared it with me, right? I got lucky. <laughs> I got informed. Um, so that's one huge thing you can do. But really, you can also Google. You can also see what other people have said about the leaders of your institutions, see how they're perceived by people that are outside of your cultural ideological bubble. And yeah, I, I think ask questions, ask, ask questions that challenge 
the, the cultural assumptions of the place that you're at. If it's about Liberty, email us. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to hear your ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it's not Liberty and you're in a different place, a different church, a different culture, ask hard questions to people and write down your thoughts. That's another, that's another big thing. Write about it. Um, and make people know that you have thoughts, share your thoughts with, sure. with people. And so you can't be ignored anymore, but yeah, those Wanted are just, you know, some, 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 some ranting there about how to, how to make change. But a lot of it is about asking questions and mm-hmm. writing down things and learning. So if people wanted to email you, is there a link on the save 71 website or is that there is. the best There's way to a- find you? There's a contact form um, on our website that will take you to an email address that is team at save71.org. If you want to email me personally, that's callumbest1 at gmail.com. My first name is spelled C-A-L-U-M. And then my last name is best as in uh, this podcast is the best. Hey, thank you. That's a yeah, good way to end it. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you so much, Callum. I really enjoyed chatting with you and just learning a little bit more about the whole Save 71 thing. And I love the passion in your voice. So thanks for chatting. Yeah, it was great to speak with you. Buddy.